Good morning. All right, let me, uh, okay, we got three after. That means I got until the clock strikes 43 to be done. <laughs> um, you know, here's, here's the thing, right? I, I'm in student ministry at Providence, and, uh, you know, funny enough, we actually don't have what's called a confidence monitor in the student room, which is where you have a screen on the back that, that counts down, and then you have the guilt timer where it shows you negative how far you've gone over. And uh, the funny thing is, you know, when you're up here, man, Gosh, 20 minutes feels an awful lot like five. <laughs> and, and stuff just goes and goes and goes. So I've started actually, you know, paying attention to my watch because I noticed, you know, I'd be up here and I'd go to check the time and I'd realize I don't know when I started. So today we have uh, accountability. Amen. Bless God. So open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter one today. We're going to specifically, actually, we're going to be in, in verses 1 through 26. But before we read that, this is how I want us to start. I want you to ask yourself two questions. All right, now, no cheating, okay? We, we're going to be honest. We're going to ask ourselves two questions, and then I'm going to give you my answers. And uh, we're going to read the Bible, and you're going to see lined up next to Paul, how horrible my answers are, but that's okay, right? Because at least you know I'm not claiming to be Paul. So two questions, all right? Be honest with yourself. First question is this. The local church, the faces of people in here, the names of people sitting in these pews, local church congregation, who are they to me? All right, question number one. Who is the local church to me? Are they friends, homeboys, Social club, uh, people I see once a week, kind of in passing, don't really know their name, but I think I shook their hand one time. Who, who is the local church to me? All right, let's think about that for just a second. Second question, how much of my life, how much of my time, and how much of my effort am I willing to give to the kingdom of God? Okay, life Time, effort, and really, if we want to be funny, let's just throw money in there. Lifetime, effort, and money. How much of myself and my whole being am, am I willing to give over to the kingdom of God? Okay, so first question, who is the local church to me? Second question, how much of my life and my time and my effort am I willing to give to the kingdom of God? Now, I'll go first. Okay, honest but not impressive. Who is the local church to me? Okay, brutally honest answer, I work for the local church. Uh, so sometimes, and you may even go as far to say that this might be a good day, sometimes the local church to me kind of just feels more like friends a little bit in, in the sense where like, I'm happy to see you, but if the offer to go home and watch the office was presented, I wouldn't be mad about it. <laughs> and then there's other times where like, I know because of the Bible that there's a fiery passion that's supposed to be in my soul for the local church because this is the bride of Christ and he loves the bride of Christ fiercely, so I'm supposed to love the bride of Christ fiercely. But man, like, I'd be lying to you if I said that there's multiple times in a week where I'm not exposed to just the ugliest side of what people that call themselves Christians can be and that I allow my bad perception of sinful people to kind of put water on the fiery passion that I'm supposed to feel for the bride of Christ. That happens in my heart. People that I know that I'm supposed to give my everything for and I'm supposed to love because, well, Christ died for them. Their bad side kind of, you know, turns me off a little bit. And, uh, 
you know, if, if we're being honest, you're probably at least got one person in this room that says, well, you know, my spouse claims to be a Christian and like, bro, you, you don't know the crazy that I live with, okay? <laughs> and uh, if, you, if you saw what I had to put up with on a daily basis, okay, for, for the sake of, of marriage and, and loving my spouse well, you'd maybe cut me some slack in how I'm loving the body of Christ. Well, our relationship to the bride of Christ and our relationship to our spouses, our relationship to everybody that we encounter that is a child of God is likened to Christ's relationship with the church. Okay? And in that scenario, there is one person that's constantly falling on its face and one person that's constantly there to bail us out. So I I have to remind myself that in my selfishness, that when I am feeling low, in my opinion of the bride of Christ is maybe being lowered a little bit in my own life, my own salvation is anchored to this rock of ages that we call Jesus. And on my worst days, his attitude towards me always is forgiveness. Next question. How much of my life and my time and my effort am I willing to give to the kingdom of God? You know, there's times where I'm, I'm hyped and I feel like I want to give the local church everything. And then there's other times where apathy wins and I give less than I should. And then there's times where I don't want to give my time and my sweat, my heart, my weekends. And honestly, for me, I'd rather sit at home and watch football sometimes. Which, hey, you know what? Biggest scam of all time. I spent 13 weeks of my year this year watching the Seminoles. Okay? We went undefeated. Yeah, I know. Stupid. (laughs) So regardless of how you want to look at this, if we're not giving everything to the kingdom of God and loving the bride of Christ with everything that's in us, probably somewhere in this equation, we're going to realize, I I think we've made a little bit of a mistake. Okay, so that being said, let's let's take these two things that, that we're sitting here pondering about ourselves and let's, you know, kind of embarrass those when we see how Paul answers these for us, all right? So Philippians 1, verses 1 through 26. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness." How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope, I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of the coming to you Again, let's pray. Father, I pray that as we dig into this word today, that your spirit would speak through me to everyone in this room, Father God, and that they would not hear me at all, but that they would hear you, and that your word and your truth would be magnified and edified. We say this, hoping that you will work in our hearts today. In your name, amen. Okay, so let's uh, wrap our minds sort of around Paul's situation in writing this letter. It'll make this make a little bit more sense. This is the book of Philippians, which is a letter addressed to the church of Philippi. Philippi was one of the major cities in the country of Macedonia. Okay, now for reference, think about kind of modern day Greece as being roughly where this would have been located. In Acts chapter 16, Paul receives this vision and he's called to Macedonia. He gets to Macedonia and he meets Lydia, the seller of purple who's powerfully converted, and it's in the same town of Philippi where Paul and Silas are imprisoned, and the earthquake comes, and they're, they're magically released, and the conversion of the Philippian jailer. A lot of cool stuff happens in Philippi. The church of Philippi was Paul's first church plant in Europe. And now, at the time that he's writing this letter, Paul is in house arrest in Rome, fearing that he's like moments away from death. The way that house arrest worked in Rome in that day was you were arrested, placed in a house, and then even if you had no money, you were held financially responsible to pay rent into the same house that you're being held prisoner in. That kind of stinks. So Philippi gets wind of what's going on with Paul in Rome, and they send a guy named Epaphroditus with a, a cash offering to Paul. I guess it would have been cash, a coin offering to Paul to kind of help alleviate some of this stress of having to pay for his imprisonment. Along the way, going to Philippi, Epaphroditus gets deathly ill, magically recovers through the power of the Holy Spirit, makes it to Rome, and gives Paul this money. Paul's obviously very moved. He feels the love of the church of Philippi. And Epaphroditus gets homesick because he knows he almost died. And so Paul 
writes this letter to the church of Philippi, which we now call the book of Philippians, and he gives Epaphroditus his blessing and sends him back to the church of Philippi, and this is what we have today. So in this book, here's what you have. A church that is near and dear to the heart of Apostle Paul, and at the same time as he's writing this, knowing he's probably going to die within weeks, okay? So like the last words that you would give to the church that you planted and that you loved, but not only that you loved, but that loved you well. And when you were at your lowest point, sent money and a person from their church to help you out. The last words of a soon-to-die man to a church that he loves, that's what this is. A little bit of extra spice on the words of Paul when, when you see it that way, I think. So let's go back to what we were first thinking of when we opened our, our Bible today, and that is this. Who is the local church to me? Now to Paul, who was the church of Philippi to him? Okay, verse 1. They are saints in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. They are partakers. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Verse 5. They are partners in the gospel with Paul. Verse 7, they are partakers of grace with him. And verse 8, they are people that he yearns for with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I think if we're being fair to ourselves, we have to acknowledge that maybe sometimes the reason that we don't view the body of Christ as highly as, as we probably should is because I think, especially in our culture, maybe we're guilty of making the church less than what it's supposed to be. And I think it's probably a real reality, right, that our church attendance is the thing that is in our life because we feel somewhere on the inside that that's just what we're supposed to do. It's no surprise that if we're attending this weekly gathering with the body of Christ out of duty to some tradition that was passed down to us from grandparents that we, that we never met, that it probably would be real easy for that thing that we don't care much about to just kind of evolve into some weird social club where we talk about the bass we caught this week, right? But to Paul, this is life and death, man. He's dying for this gospel that he received a vision miraculously to travel across the world for, to plant this church, and now he's about to die for preaching this gospel in this church that he planted sent him help. This was not... You know, $200 Allegiant airline airplane ticket, be there in two hours, okay? This was like, mule it out for three days, get on a boat and go for multiple weeks, get there, maybe you get scurvy, maybe you don't, who knows? And then you're, you're going to give this, this gift to Paul just because you love him so much. So Paul has this high esteem, right, for the church. And because Paul has such a high esteem for the church, I don't, I don't really think that it's a surprise that he also has a, a great love for the people that make up this church. And the natural question that, you, that you're going to ask now to me, because I ask this to myself, is, is as I'm reading this, how am I supposed to, to make it a goal in my own life to love the church like Paul loved the church when, well, I don't know, he was literally an apostle who had so much miraculous power in his own life that his handkerchief was healing people. Anybody in here ever healed anybody? Yeah, me neither, okay? <laughs> this dude's handkerchief is healing people, and you're telling me that I'm supposed to love the church like he loved the church when this dude's got, you know, the infinity stones of Thanos in his handkerchief? Yeah. Here's why I say that. 
We don't, we don't just love the, the bride of Christ because that's, that's what we're supposed to do. And we don't, we don't just love the bride of Christ, you know, because uh, when we were, you know, really at our lowest point, our Sunday school teacher gave us a book that, that really helped us. And so now out of like duty to love the church, we're just going to try harder and make sure that we love them. That's not how this works. We love the church because Christ first loved us. Our minds were completely hostile, unable to seek, unable to understand the things of God. Romans chapter 3. And then somehow, out of His loving kindness for us, sends the Holy Spirit to totally do a work of grace on our hearts and change us completely. And so the only reason we even have the ability to love the church of Christ is one, because of Christ, and two, because of the Spirit in us. And here's the crazy thing. The same Spirit that caused Paul's handkerchief to heal people is the same Spirit that was in Paul that gave him this deep affection for the church of Philippi is the same Spirit in Oak Ridge in right now in the year of 2023 in every single person in this room that's in Christ. And so the same miraculous power that in the book of Acts caused people to talk about the followers of Jesus and say these are the men that are turning the world upside down is the same Spirit in you right now today. And so this isn't about Paul. This isn't about how crazy his testimony was that he went from like murderer to missionary. This isn't about anything that Paul did. It isn't about how smart he is. It isn't about his pedigree. It isn't about that he made tents. You can be a worker at Y12 in Oak Ridge in Tennessee in 2023 with a different translation of the Bible, speaking a different language with a different skin complexion in a different period of time, driving a car that Paul had even no idea what that was. But it's the same spirit. And because it's the same spirit... This can be the same goal that we have for the church in our own life. And that is this goal. Because the Holy Spirit is in me, my desire is to love the church as Christ loved the church. Not because it's some duty I have, but because Christ first loved me. That's it. I don't love because I'm going to get extra credit when I get to heaven. I don't love because it's going to make me look better is a young, aspiring guy in ministry. Oh, better have love on the resume. No, that's not it. We love because Christ first loved us. And we can make it our goal to love believers more because the same Christ that worked in the heart of Paul is working in us. So what is the goal? I think the, the real easy goal to have in terms of loving the church is just this. I don't think there's any number, you know, that I got I to gotta love the church with 73.7% of my emotional capacity. That's good enough. 73.2, going to hell. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think that's how this goes. I think it's like this. If we are striving to love the church more today than yesterday because of Christ loving us, I think that's probably good. And now we pick up here in verse 12. And this is uh, one of the other simple truths that I think is, is glaring in Philippians chapter 1, and that is how much should we value the gospel and the kingdom of God in our lives? There's so much in Philippians chapter 1 that I'm not going to be able to say today, and if I did, then no shot we're getting out of here in 40 minutes. But to tell you the truth, I'm not really worried about the time. I'm worried about, uh, you know, being boring. So here's the thing. Especially... In Philippians 1, verses 3 through 10, there's just gold. 
And then again in verses 12 through 17, there's more gold that we're not going to be able to get to. And guess what? You guessed it. Also in the rest of the chapter, more gold. But where we're really going to try to lock in today is verses 22 through 26. And so we're skipping over some stuff right here so that by the time we get to verses 22 through 26, if we don't hear anything else today, I'm hoping that the phrase to live is Christ and to die is gain is just going to fundamentally change the way that we think. That's the goal. And so my challenge to you is that if we're only really going to be able to kind of look at three verses, how about we go home and study this for ourselves and see that it doesn't change our lives. Amen? It's picking up here in verse 12. How much do we value the kingdom of God in our lives and how much are we willing to invest in it? Check this out. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Pause. This, this is where Dalton checks out right here. Because my tendency in, in my own life is that if God is sovereign and I'm trying to please him, when bad and hard things happen, my first response is to raise my hand and say, that is not fair. But Paul Right now, awaiting death for preaching the gospel. What's his attitude? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, I don't care what happens. As long as it serves the gospel, I'm good. And I think my sinful tendency is to often look at the same sort of situation and say, well, if it's not advancing me, like, is God really good? Does he really love me if it makes my life hard? If God is good and he's reaching the nations with the gospel and he's kind enough to use my life to do so, whether it's hard or whether it's great, we're blessed. Verse 12, I just want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Look here at verse 13. 13 so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Okay, so basically what's happening here is Paul's imprisonment for not really committing a crime, but just for preaching the gospel, has served to do one thing really well. And that one thing that it's doing really well is it's causing the news of the gospel to spread all throughout the Roman guard. This is crazy. Because this means, all right, if they beat Paul, well, then his beatings become a testimony and he reaches people for the gospel. They try to kill Paul. He says, you know what? To live is Christ, to die is gain. They want to put Paul in prison, and he says, okay, great, we'll sing songs, and your prison will fall down, and we'll save your jailer. There's just no feasible situation where Paul can be placed where the gospel becomes a secondary issue, and Paul's well-being becomes a primary issue. The primary issue in Paul's whole life is the advancement of the gospel. And this is, I think, something that echoes throughout the whole book of Philippians right here. And it says in, in verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Meaning that it's a huge win for me to be in prison because in my imprisonment, other people who are believers in the gospel are getting more bold and they're sharing the gospel with boldness that they've never had before. So you know what? Just keep me here. That's how highly Paul not only esteems the local church, that as long as people in the local church are being more emboldened by my imprisonment, bring it on, he's saying that the gospel of Christ is being advanced by me being in prison, so bring it on. High view of the gospel, high view of the local church. 
And then verses 15 through 18, it's almost kind of like Paul says, you know what, well, speaking of the gospel, there are people who were preaching the gospel not because they love Jesus, but they're, they're preaching it out of selfish gain. And I'll be honest, Paul's take on these people surprised me a little. Because my take would have been hunt them, burn them down, you know, just no more book deals, shut their ministry off, send them to Scandinavia, like never want to see them again. They're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Forget it. And Paul says actually something that just blows my mind. What then, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Meaning that Paul is not bothered by the people that are making a living using the gospel as a cover-up for their own selfish ambition. Paul's not bothered by the fact that there are people right now in the United States that will sell you a book about how you can get your miracle so that they can take their plane and fly to another conference and make another million dollars and laugh all the way home. He don't care. Because whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And I think that if you really reduce that down to what Paul is saying, it's, it's kind of this. Jesus Christ is so sovereign, so powerful, so holy, that his plan to save the nations is not bound up by a few men's sinful hearts. He is going to do what he is going to do, whether you want to take his plan to make money off of it, whether you want to take his plan to try to denounce it and say that it never happened, whether you take his plan and join alongside of it and try to champion the gospel. He don't need you. Because Jesus is going to save the nations whether we play his game or whether we don't. He doesn't need me. I can retire from ministry tomorrow and it's no sweat off Christ because Christ reaching the nations is not dependent on my ability to reach the nations. So whether Christ is proclaimed in pretense or whether it's truth, as long as Christ is proclaimed, his plan goes forward, hearts are saved, and Paul doesn't care. It's awesome. And this is where I just, I'm kind of shaken to the core. Pick up in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, talking about his imprisonment, his potential death, this will turn out for my deliverance. I mean, is Paul so stupid? is to think that just because God delivered him one time out of Philippi, where the earthquake comes, the, the jail's knocked over, the Philippian jailer is freaking out, Paul's able to evangelize him. Is Paul so dumb as to think that just because that happened one time that it's going to happen again and that every single time for the rest of his life he's going to be magically delivered from, from this oppression? Because that don't feel real. I think that that's probably the furthest thing from what Paul means because reading this this week, I just saw it in a whole new way that just wrecked my soul and, and that is this. Paul says, For I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Here it is. Whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right, so does Paul think 
that now on for the rest of his life, every time he's in prison, that God's going to magically deliver him? No, not at all. Paul is so sold on this idea that God is in control and that the gospel is going to change the world that Paul is thinking, all right, if they let me go to live as Christ, and if they kill me to die as gain. And so he knows that he is going to be delivered because there's three options. One, they keep Paul in prison. The gospel keeps spreading throughout the imperial guard and Christians keep getting bolder and they preach the gospel more. That's a win. The second option is they let him go and he plants more churches and he writes more letters and he performs more miracles and he preaches the gospel of Christ in places he's never preached it before. That's a win. Or the third option, they kill him. And he's alleviated from all of this burden of trying to go and reach the world and he's finally able to go up and spend eternity with Christ. That's a win. And so I think Paul is so dead set on this truth that he says, guys, if they kill me, they kill me it's a, to, to live as Christ. And if they let me go, I'm coming to you too, all right? Colossae, Philippi, Spain, Rome, into the world, into the earth. I'm reaching you all with the gospel. Let me out of here, I dare you. And if you keep me here, keep me locked up, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel to the people in the Roman yard. We'll save your troops, we'll save your soldiers, and the people that were already in here for preaching the gospel, they're going to boulder too. I dare you. Do something. That's how Paul's writing because that's how he thinks. He has so highly exalted the local church and the gospel of Christ that it doesn't matter if he's in prison, if he's free, or if he's dead. His life serves to further one thing, and that is the gospel. And he says, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live, that means fruitful labor to me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Well, so Paul does kind of want to get out of prison. Why? So that he can have fruitful labor building the body of Christ here on earth. But he also wants to die because he wants to be with Christ. You, you, ever, you ever just woke up one day and been like, hard choice today. Am I going to plant a church or am I going to die? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's wild. It's crazy. And this is where Paul is at. And he's, he's like convinced that the labor will be fruitful. And he's legitimately torn between living and dying. And he wants to die. He wants to be with Christ. But he thinks that it's more necessary for him to be alive so that he can go help the church. Does Paul want to live so that he can retire, buy a house in the mountains, and catch trout for the rest of his life? Is that his goal, to hit a white ball, get into a hole, less strokes today than it was last week? Guess I'm getting better, less is paid off. Is that Paul's goal? Buy an old Corvette, drive it till it rusts out, die, pass on his money to his kids, have a good life? Is that what Paul wants? Life is a vapor. We wake up, we go to work, we pay our taxes, we pay our tithes, we do our time. And then, after 30, 40 years of doing that, we retire and we catch trout on the river until you can't. There's a song about it. And in the South, 
where Jesus has preached from the rooftops and we've, we've got reels of pastors on our Instagram telling us catchy stuff all throughout the week and there's a church on every corner. What do we do? We force a church schedule into this ideology and dream of making a lot of money and retiring and catching fish. And we, we just force these two to kind of interlock somewhere and we say, well, maybe like twice a month I'll go to church. And then with the rest of my time, I'm going to catch trout. I'm going to hunt the biggest deer. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to have a good time. I've paid my tithes. I've paid my dues. To live is trout. And to die is giving my inheritance to my kids. It's the American dream, right? You've earned it. You deserve this. You've worked hard. Spend your whole life investing in the kingdom of me. And then when I'm old, I deserve it. I'm going to cash in and I'm going to live well. And I'm going to have a nice fishing rod. I'm inviting you today into a cosmic change in our thinking. You know that in verse 21, this is one of the most popular verses in the whole Bible. It says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know that in the Greek, the word is, right there, is not in the manuscript. In the Greek, it literally says this, For me to live, Christ, and to die is gain. I heard a guy say one time that Paul is so committed to Christ that he's not even going to let a verb get in the way of him and Jesus. He's so sold that he is not going to waste his days pursuing earthly, worldly things. Instead, with every second that he has here on earth, Paul, what is your plan for the next 10 years? One word, Christ. What are your goals in life? Christ. Aren't you, aren't you getting tired of doing this? After this third missionary journey, being beaten and drugged and thrown in prison, aren't you a little worn out? Don't you, don't you owe yourself some R&R? Christ. There's no change in this guy's mind. And I just, I can't get over this truth. And that is, I think if we were to ask Paul how much of his life is he going to invest into the kingdom of God? How much of his time, his energy, and his effort is he going to invest in the kingdom of God? I think he would say all of it. And it breaks my heart for this reason. I have been so privileged to be born in a nation to where not only was I allowed to go to church, but it was almost celebrated. And I was given the Bible, choose the translation, we've got 50 of them, and at times, it probably did more dust collecting than it was read. And if we ever feel the need to go stand on the street corner and proclaim Jesus from the rooftops, we can do it without any fear of death, without any fear of being arrested, without any fear of persecution. We've been given every resource and every opportunity to go out and further the gospel, and yet I find myself caring more about how much money I've got invested for when I turn 59. I find myself looking around and seeing a world that loves sin and hates Jesus and almost relishing in the fact that God's judgment is going to come and right that wrong someday, not realizing that I'm just as bad off as they are apart from the grace of God. I allow my apathy, my complacency, 
my materialism, all these things taking precedence over the gospel. And I say, you know what? Well, as long as I read one chapter a week and go to church, I'm a good guy and I'm paying my time. Y'all, that doesn't mean that to live is Christ. That means that to live is me. And I'm going to give us a truth before we start to close that has totally, totally changed my life. Heaven is not a place for people that want to avoid going to hell. Heaven is a place for people who want to be with Christ. And if heaven is for people who want to be with Christ forever, how am I ever going to have a context or an idea or a strategy of a life where I'm given time and I don't use it to make heaven crowded and I don't use it to glorify God. And what's the reason that we do everything? Why do we wake up? Why do we go to sleep? Why do we drink coffee? Why do we read our Bible? Because we are trying to glorify God because God is worthy. That's the whole reason. And how can I fit my future into the lens that Jesus is worthy by making living about Christ. Because here's the truth. If living isn't about Christ, then you're not really living. You're just dying real slow. And this challenges me. Do I want to live the American dream or do I want to live like Paul? When I get to heaven, would I rather show God this mounted deer that I killed or would I rather show him 15 people from 15 churches that I planted? What am I going to give him? This is, this is where I think we're going to land. Oh, 11.39, praise God. This is where I think we're going to land. Two questions. Who is the local church to me? And who is the bride of Christ to me? When we ask ourselves this, I pray that our answer can be like Paul and that it's just something simply like this, that let our life here on earth be spent in service to in loving the body of Christ. Let the local church never be just a social club, but something we love and we treasure. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in us and He loves the church and He treasures the church. And if He does, then I should too. And you can come back up to the keys. Second, how much of my life and my time am I willing to invest into the kingdom of God? Let our prayer be that we give all of ourselves to the kingdom of God because Jesus gave all for us. As much as Jesus' life and his body as he was willing to give for the kingdom of God, let us match it. Because you know what that means? Everything. Let our answer be for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think about it like this. Every single second that he gives me to live is another second that I can spend glorifying him. And every second less that ticks off of my timer as I get closer to eternity is one second less I am away from being able to see my Jesus. Every second that goes by is another second that I have to glorify God. And every second that's taken off my life is one second I am closer to finally getting to be with Christ. Now we're going to end a little bit differently today than what we normally have. Randy called it reflection time. But I think that there's, there's something better that we can do. If you are a Christian 
and you've been in church for a while, I want you to reflect. To live as Christ, to die as gain. How does that fit in my life? How do, how do I love the church? How do I give everything to the kingdom of God? I want you to think about that. But the other thing is if you're not a believer, I think uh, a sharing of the simple gospel might just be valuable. So in my own life, I find that sometimes it's hard to calibrate desires and, and plans and, and will and you know you want to be a good husband and you want to serve the church and then you also need to rest so you don't burn out and everything that we've talked about today has a million different questions that you can ask about how to implement it first one being okay I need to do everything that I can for the kingdom of God so are you telling me to sell my house and move to Zimbabwe and leave my family here to fend for themselves no so there's wisdom in how we implement these truths into our own life and that's probably worth thinking about. But the thing that ultimately squares everything away and makes sense of everything, the thing that picks me up, the thing that keeps me humble, the thing that gets me to start my day, the thing that gets me to end my day is this simple truth that humanity in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, was with God, we were for God, we were in harmony with God, everything was good. It was all working well. Desires were aligned. Intentions were aligned. People were aligned. No shame, no fear, no trouble. And then all of a sudden, the serpent comes into the garden and he finds Eve. He says, hey, did God really say that you can't eat of that tree? And she says, well, yeah. And he says, well, the reason that God said for you to not eat of that tree is because he's afraid that if you do, you'll be like him. So Adam and Eve sin, they eat the fruit, and now there's cosmic separation between man and God. The order that was supposed to be there, relationship with him, closeness to him, the, the moral uprightness of man, it's just gone. Shame, fear, pain, troubles, all of it. World wars, diseases, plagues, the Holocaust, 9-11, every single thing that happens as a consequence of sin happened because man wanted to be like God. And it's this mission that we're all born on from day one. I want to grow up and I want to do something great for myself. I want to make a name for myself. I want to change the world. I can actually disguise my pride in the name of helping other people. I've started the biggest nonprofit in history. Look at how much I've helped other people. This is the mission of mankind from day one, is to serve yourself, to make your name great, to bring yourself glory. And then all of a sudden, one day, there's just this, this moment where the Spirit comes in. And for those of us that are Christians, it's, it's something like this. You see your sin. And you see total unworthiness. You see every failure, every lie, every time you've ever rejected Christ, every thought you've ever thought of that distanced you from Jesus. And then my prayer is that you heard somebody say, all of this can be made right. Every last thought, every last sin, past, present, future, you can be exempted from the wrath of God that's going to judge you for the crimes that you've been committed and all, all you have to do is have faith in Christ. And it's this moment of great news that Jesus Christ on the cross lived a perfect life, 
never sinned. His report card was all A's and yours was all F's. And if you believe in him as the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only hope, your report cards flop. And when you get to heaven and God says, on what account are you here? You get to look at him and say the perfection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And then even after this powerful process of the gospel changes our hearts, Dalton is still fighting the temptation to live for his own glory. It's years after the fact. And I still every day have to wake up and crucify the flesh because there are things that I want that Jesus does not want. And as long as those two desires are at odds with each other, my prayer is that the Spirit comes in and kills this and makes it like this for his glory. So here's the news. If you don't know Christ, you're not living. If you don't know Christ, life doesn't make sense because ultimately there is no future. Because if my life is apart from Christ, my future is me. You know what? I'm pretty terrible. And the story of the gospel is that we are going to have to stand before God and give an account for our lives. And every single human being, when it's their turn, is going to look at God and stand condemned. Why? Because we are sinful. We have chosen ourselves, and we have not chosen Him, and we don't deserve Him. And if God is really just, He can't just let it slide. He's got to deal with the sin. That's bad news. Good news is, try to earn it. Try to do right. Try to build enough orphanages. Try to give enough money to charity. Try to feed enough homeless people to offset all the bad that you've done. You can't. You mean that if I spend the rest of my life living for others, that that's not going to be able to like save my soul? Nope, not even close. You want to know why that's good news though? Because that means you don't have to. This doesn't. This means that your salvation is not contingent upon your performance, hoping that you've just done enough to offset all the wrong that you've done. Your salvation is available and secure in one thing and one thing alone, and that is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And when you legitimately see him as the only hope, if I have him, I have everything. If I don't have him, I have nothing. When you see his perfection as your only hope, it's standing before God and being made right is Jesus' perfection. In that moment, you're free from everything. Because if you grow up, you grow old, and the money's not in the account the way that you wanted it to be, the business is not the size you wanted it to be, your dreams haven't gone the way you've wanted them to go, it doesn't matter. Because life is a vapor. And if I'm in Christ, that means eternity with him. So come what may here on earth to live as Christ, to die as gain. So I'm going to pray. He's going to play for a minute. And then whenever he feels the need, you can dismiss. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us here today. I pray that the gospel would go forth, and that hearts and lives would be changed. All of this would land, prick our hearts. And Father, I pray that the message of our life would be this one thing, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Father, thank you for the grace to bring us here today. Thank you for your word. Go before us and behind us. In your name we pray. Amen.